blessed assurance Jesus is mine Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine I was raised a Jehovah's Witness. Kind of pushed me away from, from religion and pushed me to claim agnostic. About 10 years ago, we adopted two little girls that were a part of our extended family. But in the 10 years since we adopted the children, uh, our life has been filled with conflict, anger, drama. Ahorita lo más difícil que me ha pasado es lo de mi esposo de uh, septiembre, 6 de septiembre ya va a ser tres meses que migración fue a, a la casa, era las 7 de la mañana. Es algo muy duro para mí, para mis hijos, y entré como en, en depresión. I um, grew up in a family that I say is like a holiday church attender, and then I met Justin, and years passed, and we continued down that you know road of just attending, not really um, participating. So, and with that happening and life happening to us, um, we hit kind of a rocky road in our in our life and our marriage. In the summer of 1988, uh, I was involved in a car wreck, and my mom and my brother passed away in that wreck, and that was the summer before my junior year in high school. This is my song, I'd have to say that he's prepared me different stages in life for um, the next stage. It, it challenges your view of God. Is God really a good God? The answer is yes. I, I can't even explain to you, honestly. I just, I mean, I'm going to get teary. I, I can't, I can't explain to you when I walked in the doors. Just my heart opened up and I had people telling me, welcome home. And right then, I confessed my sins, uh, admitted my need uh, for Jesus to be my Savior. And from that moment on, I have never had a single doubt of my salvation. Dios, algo bueno va a venir de esto, de todo esto. Y así lo cree mi esposo y lo creo yo. The most amazing thing that I've probably learned about God is that He's always there. And the love of a church family and the accountability of church family, I mean, it's just amazing it's amazing no matter what happens God does have a plan for me God does have a purpose for me and I may not understand it I may not see it but that doesn't make it any less real this is my story this is my song praising my That was a series promo that we started to give you a little hint of where we were going. And I thought, how cool would it be for us to come back to that and remember those stories? I'm so thankful for those stories that were shared on video. I'm so thankful for every story that was shared up front, because we shared a lot of stories up front that weren't captured on video in that way. And uh, I'm just thankful that, that God has done what he's done in this series. Aren't you? And this has been a good season 
for us just to get to know each other a little bit better and obviously get to know God a little bit more in the stories that he's given us. We don't know him through a list of definitions. We know him through stories of people. And it's through learning those stories and seeing how he, how he moves in our own lives, in our own stories, that we get to know who he is and, and how good he is. So I'm just so thankful uh, for those. Good morning. Welcome to South City. We're so glad you're here. My name is Drew Klein. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we wrap up our series called Stories, Discovering God in Defining Moments. And uh, we've all done that, right? There's all been, we've all had moments where we've learned a little bit more about who God is and about what he's doing and what he's done uh, in our own lives and our own tragedies and the things that we all walk through. But hopefully what we're learning is that our stories are not the one that matters as much as the story, Right? The, the main story, God's story, the story of God, it's all about him. And it's by his grace that he's invited our stories to be supporting characters to the main character. And so this morning, we need to be thinking about the fact that God is still working. He's still moving. We're still caught up. We, we did a series in the summer uh, on the book of Acts. And I just kept saying, the book of Acts is not finished. We ought to be living in Acts 29 and Acts 30 and Acts 31 and because that is the continuation of the mission of God by the people of God until the Son of God comes back, right? That's what the Word says. And so we're still caught up in this story. And we've got to see it as that. We've got to know that God is still doing something in this world. And by His grace, He's invited each of us to be involved. But the problem is we get blinded to the details of our own stories, we get blinded in the joys and the pleasures and the excitement and the dreams of what we want to be and what we want to do, or we get blinded and devastated by the tragedy and the difficulty, and, and we've heard some incredible difficulty. I've wept with you through some of the difficulty that you've walked through and each of us have, has faced, and yet even still, God uses that difficulty and that brokenness to tell his story which will make it all make sense in the right time. I love this, uh, this quote from Frederick Buckner in his uh, book, Telling the Truth. kind of gives us a little sense of the greater story that we're involved in. Look what it says. It is a world of magic and mystery, of deep darkness and flickering starlight. It is a world where terrible things happen and wonderful things too. It is a world where goodness is pitted against evil. Love against hate, order against chaos, and a great struggle where often it is hard to be sure of who belongs to which side because appearances are endlessly deceptive. Yet for all its confusion and wildness, it is a world where the battle goes ultimately to the good who live happily ever after and where in the long run everybody good and evil alike becomes known by his true name. That is the fairy tale of the gospel with, of course, one crucial difference from all other fairy tales, which is that the claim made for it is that it is true. Not that, uh, that it has not only happened once upon a time, but it has kept on happening ever since and is still happening. That's the story we're caught up in. I don't, are we, do we have any Lord of the Rings fans in here? So I love Tolkien's writing. I love those series of, of books and movies. And one of the characters one time said, what sort of tale have we fallen into? I love that, I love that quote. I love that statement. And I, listen, this morning, everyone in this room, I'm not sure exactly what sort of tale it is that you've fallen into, but there's no question you've fallen into one, right? It is, it is a story that we're living. You know, one of the books that has really shaped 
my understanding of this, of this grand story is this little tiny book by John Eldridge called Epic. I love that book. It's such a great book. But in his book, he talks about the fact that scientists for many, many years have tried to prove to us that our existence and our universe came out as a, of a result of, of an accident. Some little accident all of a sudden formed all that we are and all of the universe is. And that probably one day it'll be another little accident that causes it all to go away. But for those of us who believe in God, for those of us who believe the Bible, the reality is that our existence and our beginning came from a more thoughtful place, didn't it? In fact, it came out of uh, the triune God together in relationship. And it's from that relationship that he invites us into this relationship and into this story. Right? I, I love that, that, that feeling. that This isn't just some cold calculation that happened, but it's in relationship that we are here and living in this story. There's a thing called the story arc. If I were to take my finger and kind of go like this and explain to you the story of God, it would look like this. On one side, there would be something we, we call creation. And this is when the Trinity together says, let us make man in our own image. So in creation, the Trinity chooses to start this story. And then it wasn't much longer that the fall happened and, and man and woman, we decide that we can do it on our own. That our plan is better than God's plan. And by the way, we still make that choice quite a bit. And that's the fall. And we see sin infect the whole world, all of us, all of our children, all of our lives, everything that we are and everything we do. But Jesus comes to bring the rescue, right? Through the cross of Christ, we are rescued our hope is in him and him alone. And then we're caught now, right now, every one of us is caught in this story in between the rescue and the restoration. So the restoration is, is what John talks about in Revelation when he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And where God says, I will make all things new. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more pain. I'll make all things new. But for us today, we're, we're caught in the middle of this story of God. And that story is one that somewhere between the rescue of Jesus, his redemption for us on the cross, and the restoration of the world. That's, we're caught in this story somewhere there. We, we're past his rescue, and yet not to the restoration just yet. So God is doing an amazing thing. And I just have this thought that as we believe and, and mature in Christ, that I think we come to this understanding that this life is not about us. That instead this life ought to be lived for the one who made us. That he would use us to be a blessing to the people around us. Like if you want to measure maturity in Christ, have you really understood that? Do you understand this life is not about you? It's about living for the one who made you and being used by that one for the ones around you. I love the, the conversation of story. I love telling my, my kids stories, and I even love the Gospel of John. Of course, we know the Gospels tell us about the life of Christ. Two main Gospels kind of tell us the details of the Christmas narrative, but John sort of has his way of doing that too, and it's very story-like. Look with me, if you would, in John chapter 1. Just listen to the way he words this so beautifully. In the beginning was the Word. Does that sound like a story to you? Yeah. The word, of course, we know is Jesus, and he'll explain that in just a minute, but let's put Jesus in the reading, can we? In the beginning was Jesus, 
And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And Jesus became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Isn't that beautiful? Just this 30,000 foot view of what God is doing. Of course, we know John's gospel, the main thing he wants us to know in his gospel is Jesus is the savior of the world, right? It's, it's in John 3 that we learn in the conversation with Nicodemus that, that he sent his only son, that no one has to perish. Everyone can have everlasting life because of this Jesus that has been sent. John wanted us to know that Jesus is the savior of the world. Of course, Luke and Matthew both give us most of the detail in the Christmas story. And we've been in the Luke and gospel for the last, many stories in the last many Sundays looking at those details. But this Sunday, and I know it's going to be crazy, just hang with me for a minute. I thought we would look at Matthew's gospel. So look with me for our main text today, Matthew 1. First chapter of the New Testament, first verse, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. You still with me? All right, let's keep going. Verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Madhan, and Madhan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now, that's a mouthful, isn't it? My goodness. I bet if some of us were honest this morning, we would say in your Bible reading, sometimes you come to these genealogies and you go, I'm just going to pass over that. And who, have you done it? You've done it. But here's the thing. Sometimes we think there's not a whole lot of good information in these genealogies, but there is. The, this is the Word of God. This is not secondary to, the, to any other passage in the Word of God. This is as powerful as, for God so loved the world, because it's His Word. 
There's a reason for it in Scripture. And so even though sometimes we do that, let's not do that on this Matthew passage. Matthew, he's speaking to a mainly Jewish audience, and it's so important what he's going to say. And what he says to his audience is so very clear. Look at the very first verse, a very important verse. Now, by the way, can I just say this? So the New Testament, you know, we've been in what they call this intertestamental period, which is that 400 years of silence. And now it's the New Testament. And it begins with Matthew. Now, however, we know that Matthew wasn't the first book written in the New Testament. Not even close. In fact, most of, if not all, of Paul's letters and writings had all been written before Matthew was even written. But the early church fathers chose to canonize the New Testament in such a way that they placed Matthew as the very first book in the New Testament. Why would they do that? Look at the verse first. This is a genealogy of Jesus Christ. You can just stop right there. This is what he's saying. This is a genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. See, the word Christ is just a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So again, to a Jewish audience, Matthew's saying, like right out of the chute, Jesus is the Messiah. He starts with that. He's making it so clear to this Jewish audience. Jesus is the Messiah. And then he says, son of David, son of Abraham. In other words, I'm about to prove to you how Jesus is the Messiah. Of course, we know that there are prophecies about how Jesus or about how the Messiah would come through the Davidic line. There's different prophecies. 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 110. Others speak of this, the fact that the Messiah would be an offspring of David, that he would sit on the throne of David forever, right? And so the purpose of this genealogy is that Matthew could say, Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne. He is connected to David. This is the genealogy from Abraham and David. Of course, we know that Jesus was not only connected to David through Joseph, but also through Mary. And Mary's genealogy happens in Luke 3. So on both sides, he's connected to David and rightfully Messiah. So we see that uh, when it comes to David, he's, he's keeping his promises. And this is the first thing on your card, by the way. In Jesus, God keeps his promises. He made a promise to David that one of his heirs would sit on his throne forever. Jesus fulfills that promise, Right? What about Abraham? Why does it say he's the son of David and the son of Abraham? Well, he made a promise to Abraham too. He said in Abraham in Genesis 12 that one day through you, Abraham, one day through you, I will bless all the families of the earth. Now, we know Abraham would be the father of the Jewish people, but it's not just Jewish families. He said, one day through you, I will bless all of the families of the earth. And aren't we glad today that we sit in Little Rock, Arkansas, not, some of us not from Jewish families, we're the recipient, right, of that promise through Abraham. And Jesus is that promise fulfilled, a blessing to every family. In Jesus, God keeps his promises. He kept his promise to David. He kept his promise to Abraham. And then you'll notice in this section of genealogy, it's kind of divvied up into sort of like three sections. Starts with Abraham and goes down. And then it goes from David and then goes down to the third section, which is about the exile, right? The exile of the Jewish people. And so in exile, there's a promise that he would rescue his people. 
There's a promise that he would rescue, he would be the rescuer, the deliverer of his people. Of course, we've seen God do that time and time again. And I don't, you know, I don't think about Christmas and think about exile very much. Do you? I don't very often put them together. But what if I was to sing, and this is going to be rough because i got a bad cold, but what if I was to sing a song that even in its writing, even in, in its melody, is dark. If you want to write a moody song, you write it in a minor key. And you'll feel darkness. You'll feel lament. You'll feel frustration. You'll feel heartache. And so that's what the writer of this Christmas song did. Listen to the words from exile. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. That mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. You feel the, the weight? Lord, come and rescue us. And even in the chorus, you feel hope. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel. Shall come to thee, O Israel. You feel the hope. You see, Jesus keeps promises, and it's in Jesus that God keeps his promises to David and to Abraham. And Jesus is the promise fulfilled, even in the exile. That's why that portion of this genealogy makes sense. Here's the second thing on your card. In Jesus, God brings beauty from ashes. Would any of you testimony, have a testimony that that's true? God brings beauty from ashes. Man, he has in my life. No question. He brings beauty from ashes. You know, one of the things that's popular nowadays are these DNA tests. You know, 23andMe and, I don't know, others. Ancestry.com, some of those things. People want to know, who am I? Where do I come from? What, what is my story? Well, what's, what's my deal, right? They want to know what's happening. And the hope is that when you get the results back, that maybe you're connected. I am the great, 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 great grandson of Abraham Lincoln, you know? Or I, maybe there's money to be found, or maybe there's somebody really important and wonderful that you are connected to. But one thing you don't want to see is when the ancestry thing comes back and you're connected to that mass murderer about 200 years ago, right? Like, oh, that's okay. I don't want people to know that. See, there's some things about genealogies we're excited to be connected to, and others we're like, shh, we don't, we don't speak of that. We all have that uncle, but we don't really talk about it, right? But here's the difference. Matthew does. Matthew does talk about the problems. He does make it clear that Jesus comes from a, a sordid group of people. And we need to make no mistake this morning that in his lineage, Jesus came from some, from some scoundrels, bad people. Another thing that, that we want to say, of course, Matthew wanted to prove Jesus' Davidic lineage, right, from David. But he wants to show us something else. He wants to show us something else. Now, one thing about genealogies is that women were never mentioned, ever. Women are not mentioned in genealogies, but in this one they are. Well, at least five are mentioned. Now, of course, 
This genealogy includes 46 people over the span of 2,000 years. So there's a lot more than five women involved, right? A lot more. So the question is, why would Matthew give us these five names? And as we look at these five names, what does it mean? What is Matthew trying to say about Jesus' lineage that we need to know today, right? So here's the first thing, or the first person, the first woman that Matthew mentions in this genealogy. Her name is Tamar. Now, some of you know about Tamar. Her story is in Genesis 38, and it's a sordid one. She was married to a guy. Uh, he died, and she couldn't have children. And part of the, you know, we've talked about this, part of your uh, benefit to society is that you provide children. Well, now she can't do that. So her father-in-law, Judah, says to one of his sons, marry her so that she can have children. Well, he didn't want to have children by Tamar, and so he didn't. And so he died. Well, she still wanted to have children. And you know what Tamar does? She, she does what a lot of us do. We take what we think is the plan of God into our own hands, and we say, I'll deal with this. I'll get this done one way or another. And Tamar disguises herself, covers her face, hides out on a road, and she, she makes herself look like a harlot, the Bible says. And when her father-in-law, Judah, comes by, he's tempted by this harlot he supposedly doesn't know. He goes in to Tamar, and they basically have sex. And a little, few months later, it comes out that she's pregnant. And now Judah's forgotten his own sin. He's all of a sudden self-righteous. And he says, Wait, she's pregnant? Well, bring her out so we can burn her. Well, she walks out and she has his signet ring and a cord from his robe. He changes his tune pretty quickly, as you can imagine. And he says, she's a better person than I am. Now, wait a minute, Matthew. Why would you put this in? We want to keep this stuff buried, right? We don't want people to know this kind of junk from our family. And yet Matthew thought it was important for us to look at some of the sordid stories in Jesus' lineage. The second woman in the lineage mentioned is Rahab. Now, Rahab was one of the ladies we did a story on here. Joshua 2. Remember, she was the prostitute of Jericho. Is there a theme here? She was also the one that lied to the guards and said that, no, they're not here. They've already gone away. So here... She's a lying prostitute of Jericho. The third woman is Ruth. Now, Ruth is known as a hero of the faith. But one of the things that we know about Ruth is that she had a great, great need. She had a great, great need. And the Lord met that need. Fourth person mentioned is Bathsheba. Of course, Matthew won't even mention her name. He says that this is the wife of Uriah. Of course, we know that to be Bathsheba. Bathsheba's story is in 2 Samuel 11, and that story is, is an awful one. And we talk about King David, what an amazing man he was, but this was one of his weak points, no question. He sees Bathsheba bathing from the top of his roof. And in Jewish custom, if you were to see something like that, you would avert your eyes. I don't need to see that. That's not something I need to, to pay attention to. Well, he not only continued to look, he averted his heart from God. And he began to sin. He basically goes and has his men kidnap her, in essence, bring her to him, and he, in essence, rapes her. This is horrible. This is awful. Matthew, why would you list these stories in the lineage of Jesus? And, of course, the last mother of Jesus is his mother Mary. She's a young 
unmarried virgin. Of course, she's in scandal of her own. See, they all entered into the family tree in different ways. Uh, Some of them tricked their way. Some of them had a great need and some of them in surrender and obedience. But I think what Matthew's doing here is he's showing us that there is real brokenness, real humanity, imperfection in the line of Jesus. He's reminding us that if the Holy Son of God can come through that kind of uh, generational dysfunction, there's hope for our generational dysfunction. What do you think? If there's that big of a mess that the Holy Son of God could come through, there's hope for our families as well. God uses, he uses us in spite of the people that we've come from. In these 46 people, there's heroes of the faith like Abraham, Isaac, and David. There's people known for their sin like Tamar and uh, Rahab. There's people who don't live that exciting of a life. In fact, all we see is their name and we don't really know anything about them. And then there's people who are downright evil in this list, like Manasseh and Abijah. These are evil men. Does anybody remember what Matthew's job was when he met Jesus? What was he? He's a tax collector. There's no position or person hated more than a tax collector. How fitting that, that God would see fit for a tax collector who understands what it means to feel marginalized, to feel put aside, to feel unloved, to feel attacked, to feel unworthy, that he would be the one God would choose to write the story and say, hey, don't forget a few of these women. Don't forget a few of these imperfections in Jesus' story because it gives credence, it gives credibility to the fact that there's imperfection in all of our stories. And God can use those imperfections. He can use anyone from anywhere who's done anything. That regardless of your family, your past, whatever your family tree actually says you're supposed to be, right? We all come from a family tree. For whatever reason, you might think, well, that means I'm supposed to be that. Regardless of what your family tree says that you're supposed to be, God can do anything in you. If God can bring Messiah through that mess, he can bring you out of yours. Amen? Jesus' family was filled with people who were far from perfect. In fact, his church family is no different, is it? (laughs) No different. All of us in here today are far from perfect. We're made up of spiritual giants and broken addicts. That's who we are. Saved by the grace of God. All of us sinners, saved by his mercy and his grace. All of us desperate for that grace in Jesus. Something else that I want to bring to your attention that's no small thing in our culture to think about and something that's been in Scripture all along in Matthew in this genealogy. And that is that Jesus' lineage was one of diversity. Religious diversity, racial diversity. In these women, four out of the five of these are not Israelite. Tamar is Canaanite. Rahab is Canaanite. Ruth is Moabite, by the way, which is a product of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters. So he's got that going for him. And then Bathsheba is Hittite. What are you saying? I'm saying 
Sweet baby Jesus was a mixed race. How long have we seen these classical paintings of art with this lily-white Caucasian Jesus? And it's not true. It's not real. That's not what he looked like. Jesus would have been Middle Eastern. He would have had dark skin and coarse hair. That's Jesus. And what's beautiful in this, friends, Revelation says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess from every nation, tribe, and tongue that he is the Lord, right? And how beautiful that the very Savior we worship, even in his ethnicity, represents the diversity of the people who worship him. Isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful. Here's the last thing from your card. And Jesus, praise him, we are saved. In Jesus, we are saved. It's the first statement of the text and the last statement of the text. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. My little girl said the other night, she said, Daddy, was Christ his last name? And I was like, no. He kind of became that. I think people kind of refer to him like that's his first and last name. It's his title, right? Jesus is the Christ. He is Messiah. And when we think at this time of year, when we get to Christmas, we can't help but think about sweet little eight-pound innocent baby Jesus, right? We can't help but think about sort of that image. But here's the reality. If he's Messiah, we can't remove the image of sweet baby Jesus from adult Jesus hanging on a cross. And even in the Christmas narrative, that thorn is placed many times. What did the angel say to Joseph when he said, hey, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And the way he was going to do that wasn't by coming to the world as a baby alone. It was going to be by hanging on a cross and dying. What else do we know? We know that Simeon, my friend Michael preached a passage on Simeon. Simeon told to Mary, she's holding this baby. Hey, one day, a sword will pierce your soul. He wasn't speaking of a real sword. He was speaking of the moment that we see in Matthew 19, where she's standing before her son, hanging on a torturous cross, dying for her sin. As she holds the baby, there's a thorn, a reference of his death. What about the Magi? I love the story of the wise men, the Magi, right? And they bring these gifts. We think maybe there's three of them because there's three gifts, but it never tells us how many Magi there are. But they bring gifts of what? Gold, frankincense, and what? Myrrh. But that's a weird gift because myrrh is an anointing ointment that you put on babies? No. You put, you put myrrh on dead people. You anoint dead people with myrrh. Can you imagine Mary and Joseph? Thanks for the myrrh. This is, right? Here's the point. Even in this story of baby Jesus, beautiful, Emmanuel, God with us, there are elements even in the stories of what matters most. And it's not that he would just come as a baby, but that he would die as a sinless man. Son of God and Son of Man. Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, all of them necessary to redeem the world. And there's no plan B. 
It's only in Jesus that we have salvation. Only in Jesus. Friends, if you think there's some other way, you're wrong. Paul argued in the Sanhedrin in, in Acts chapter 4, and he said this right here. He said, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is our only hope. But what's beautiful is that before the foundations of the world, Revelation 13 says, before the earth is even created, before we're even created, the lamb was slain. What does that mean? It means before God even created us, he had a plan to redeem us. Isn't that beautiful? Before he even created us or the world, he had a plan to redeem us, and that's something that only an author can do. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Some people think that religion or this life of faith, it's about being perfect. I used to think that growing up. I used to look at the pastor and go, oh, that guy's like, He's, he's missing just the halo. That's all he's missing, right? Listen, a life in Christ is not about perfect people. It's about forgiven people. And every one of us in each of our stories has things that we wish we could kind of, let's not remember that. Let's not remember them. Let's not be connected to that. But friends, God uses every broken heart, every scar, every tear, every broken story in Scripture in your life, he used it, he's done it, he, he'll, he's done it for generation after generation. See, the story of Jesus is one of promises kept, prophecies fulfilled. His genealogy not only proves his lineage to David, but it also shows us that the story of Jesus is about forgiveness. That's what Matthew was trying to do with those ladies. He wants to remind us that it's not just about the lineage, it's about God's forgiveness, his grace. It's about new beginnings. It's about hope for the lost. It's about justice for the marginalized. It's about joy for the brokenhearted. My friend, your past does not define you. And though some of you have been living out of this tape of where you've come from or who your family has been or what you've experienced, can I just give you permission from the word of God to say, stop. Your past doesn't define you. What you've done doesn't define you. We've got to get to the place where we, we know and we believe with all of our hearts that the only thing to define us is the one who loved us enough to give us life through Jesus. The Father, are you his son? Are you his daughter? Is that your identity? That's what should define you. Are you in Jesus' family? Do you know him this morning? We're talking about his, his lineage, his family tree, and yet it's still, it's still going. In fact, the Bible talks about a book in heaven called the Lamb's Book of Life. And in that book is written the names of those of us who have trusted Jesus with all that we are. And we've said, yes, Lord, I believe that you died for me. You lived a perfect life. You gave everything for me. Would you forgive me and change me and save me? And my name is written in that book, I have no doubt just as Julian said on the video, I have no doubt. Is your name in that book today? Are you in Jesus' family tree today? Again, it's not about perfect people. It's about forgiven people. We would just give you the opportunity to say, hey, come be a part of this sketchy family. That's who we are. 
right? I mean, come on, y'all. This time the church just started realizing we're messed up people. Our families are messed up. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're broken. And yet we can be healed by the grace and the blood of Jesus. You know, one day, one day in heaven, we're going to think back to this life on this earth. We're going to think about these 70 or 80 years the Bible says we have to live. And it's going to feel like a daydream. You know when you have daydreams or you, you can barely remember a few of the items in the dream and you remember it's this one and this. and That's what it's going to be like to remember this life. It's going to be like a daydream. It went by so fast in light of eternity. This story of God that we are caught up in for all eternity, this life will feel like a daydream. I thought it would be fitting for us to finish our stories series reading a quote from uh, one of C.S. Lewis's books. I'm, I love his writing. This is from his book, The Last Battle. Then Aslan returned to them and said, you do not look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leaped in a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you or as you used to call it, in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that begin to happen after that were so great. They were so beautiful, I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they lived happily ever after, but for them it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all the adventures of Narnia had only been uh, the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Friends, eternity is a long time to be wrong. How has your life worked out for you so far? Have you been following your story and your dream and your plan? Or have you surrendered to the author? The one who created the earth. That holds the sun just far enough for us to have heat and life. Or you said, no, 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 that doesn't make sense. It was an accident. No, no, this is a story of a good God who loves you so much that no matter what you've done or who you've been, will forgive you and save you if you'll give him that opportunity. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me this morning? What a beautiful season this Christmas season is. And can I just ask you this morning before we step into the next couple of days of Christmas joy. Can I ask you, do you know Jesus to be your Savior? 
I, I just want to pray for you. If there's any doubt in your heart, if you would say to me this morning, Drew, honestly, I'm just not sure, would you pray for me? I just want God to give me assurance in my heart and in my soul that I know him as my Savior. If that's you this morning, I'm not going to call you out. I just want to pray for you. Would you just slip up your hand so I can pray for you? Thank you. Anyone else? I'm just not sure. I don't know. Anyone else? Okay. And maybe for many others, you would say, listen, I've been chasing my own thing for a long time. It hadn't worked out for me. I'm ready to say stop. I don't want to be known by the family I've had or the mistakes that I've made. I want to be known by the God who created me. And I want to know him with all my life. Would you pray for me? If that's you this morning, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Thank you, dear. Thank you. Anyone else? Friends, before we pray, look right here. He is Emmanuel. God with us. Pray with me. Father God, thank you that you love us enough that you would send your only son to be born of a virgin, to be the son of God and yet the son of man, and that he would live a sinless life and grow up and die a sinner's death and be willing to take my place be willing to forgive me of my sin after all the junk I've done, after all the lies I've told and after all the, the things I've been that have been against you, Lord. Thank you that you are God with me. That you are God today. You are God right here. You're God in the middle of my frustration, in the middle of my doubt, in the middle of my sickness, in the middle of my questions, in the middle of my broken life. You are God with us. Lord, if there's one person today that has not chosen to follow you, to trust you, would you give them that drawing that only you can give them, Father God? If there's any person here, Lord, that's tired, they're just weary, God, would you give them rest? Would you say to them, come unto me, all of you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. And learn of me. God, would you give rest to the weary, hope to the hopeless, and life to anyone, Lord, who feels that they don't have much left. God, would you be all that we need today? And in spite of our past, in spite of our families, remind us, God, that you're a God of promises kept beauty from ashes, and that ultimately in you, Jesus, you are our only hope for salvation. We bless you today. May we worship you now in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name.